Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, we're going to be in Joshua 20 tonight. Uh, you can open or click your Bibles to Joshua 20. I like the way you say it. I grew up, I was always open your Bibles. Now we can say click your Bible. It's very cutting edge. I'm feeling really high tech with that. Um, so here it is, verse 1. The Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. It is time, as we are deep into Joshua, to do a quick review of the whole book, because the cities of refuge showing up in chapter 20 is intentional, it's designed, um, it is part of the message of Joshua, but we need to see the whole book and step back and see the forest um, before we get into the trees. Um, so I'm going to quickly review it. Um, in chapter 1, they studied the Word of God together, right? And we talked about chewing on the Word and digesting the Word. In chapter 2, Rahab gets saved as an individual as they're conquering an entire world with multiple nations. One individual gets singled out and saved by God, showing God's will and heart for Gentiles and his will and heart that not one should perish, right? That, that we know that character of God. And in fact, Joshua shows us the character of God throughout. Chapter 3, he asks his people to step in the water. He doesn't ask them to stop the water. He doesn't ask them to change the flow of the river. He just asks them to step where he tells them to step. Chapter 4 and 5, he stops the water. They cross the Jordan. We get this detailed account of how God's people walk with God and how you that moving when God tells you to move thing happens. Chapter 6, I like the image of hobbits versus Jericho. They have a feast, they circumcise, they hang out and do all the things God says to do in his word in, within miles of Jericho before they ever do anything to attack Jericho. In chapter seven, or in chapter six then, Jericho's walls fall down. They walk right up into the city. Everything's prepared for them. God pretty much decimates their military and they have this city that they just walk into. Chapter seven, there's sin in the camp. As the people of God have one person in their camp that does things in sin, they have to deal with that. And that we get to see how God has his people dealing with sin in the camp. Chapter eight, they all repent together as a community. They deal with Achan. Then they're ready to move on. And then in chapter 9, we get another image of Gentiles. The Gibeonites come up deceptively, but they want to be right with Israel and be on good terms with Israel. They get caught in their lie. They admit to it. Joshua forgives them and says, welcome to Israel. And he makes them woodcutters and water carriers for the temple of God. So they get that position to be there. He welcomes them into the family. Chapter 10, God fights all of their battles for them. They don't have to do anything. Chapter 11 through 13, God then not only fights their battles, but he then wins and claims the territory. There isn't, after two major battles, there isn't one major military left in the Canaanite lands. There's lots of Canaanite cities. Most of them have left. Chapters 15 through 19, God allocates inheritance to his people. You've done what I've asked you to do. 
even with your backsliding, you've let Gentiles in when, when I get guided you to do that, and you've been walking faithfully with me, here's your inheritance. And he doles out the inheritance. It is not equal. The inheritance is based on the heart of the people that come into his kingdom. And he is distinctive based on their hearts. But they're all part of the family of the God. They all get a portion and they all get a inheritance except for his servants, the Levites, don't get land. They get cities to live in, but they don't get to own the land. And the Simeonites get put into the Judah territory and they live there. So these are... Um, these are not easy chapters to get through, especially 15 through 19, right? You're getting all these city names and all this sort of thing, and there's a lot of detail to it. We get more of that tonight with these two chapters we're going to do. But let me say that the study of the word's been fruitful. And I got this image this week um, that really captured my heart around these chapters, that sometimes you go through difficult chapters like the cities of refuge because you're digging for something, and you're looking for what God has to offer. So when we go through life, what would it take to get us to study the Bible? Or people we know who don't really study the Bible. What would it take to get them to do that? So if I said to you, I've got $100,000 and I'm going to bury it in the Bible somewhere and there's a phrase that you have to find and then you get $100,000. Would for $100,000 you faithfully get into the word every day for a month? Or if that's not enough, maybe I said I'll pay you a half a million dollars if you study the word of God for a half an hour a day, every day for a month, would that be enough to get you to study? Now, some of you are already in the word every day for 30, because something's motivated you to do that. And though money's not our motivator, we have things that motivate us. And for me, at least, I get into these chapters, and what I like about them is I'm digging for gold because God tells me to study his word, and I do it, and he's offering us an inheritance in heaven if we do things faithfully like God tells us to do it. So... Those things we do, I think that most people, if you said, even you could lower that price, you could even say like $5,000. For $5,000, I've buried something in your backyard. You just got to dig it up and find it, and I'm not going to tell you where I buried it. But it will change your life because there's $5,000 in that little box that I've buried in your backyard. How many of you would go home tonight and start digging? Or maybe you'd wait till tomorrow morning and start digging. But how much more so when we study the word, how much more value does the word have? You know, you'd have people dig up like close encounters of the third kind. They dig up their whole backyard for $5,000, but they won't take the time to study the word of God. And I think that's something special about God's people is we take God's word and it actually has value to us to the point where we study it. So I just love that. And I love gathering with other people that study the word. But that image of like, that's what we're doing tonight. Sometimes you're just digging. And sometimes you're just digging through names of cities like last week. Um, and that has value to it. And I think with the city of refuge, it's kind of like that. L let me point out a few things. In verse 1, the word also is right there, the third word. The Lord also spoke to Joshua. This implies that, if you remember from the last chapter, he and the elders and uh, the high priest were in front of the tabernacle getting the allocations of lands. So when we see the word also here, it means that the cities of refuge were intricately tied to the allocation of lands. When God gives his inheritance to his people, part of his inheritance is to put the people of God out amongst his people. And when we assign these cities to the Levites, they're establishing refuge cities throughout the country. And the word also is there. That is also what he does when he gives them the land. So not only did they get the land and the financial benefits of inheritance, God also gives them Levites. 
and gives them people in their families or within reach that they can hear the word of God, they can pray, they can worship, they have people that understand God's word and they have them in close proximity. Chapter 20 then is linked to chapter 19 in an essential kind of way. The Hebrews get the portions and another way to see this is Hebrews got the land but God gets his cities of refuge. So he first gives them their inheritance and then God claims his own. And so the cities of refuge are almost like a tithe amongst all these cities. Some of the cities that were named in the last few chapters are going to get named again because God claims them. So he gives them everything, and then he asks for one city back in these different areas for his grace and his mercy. It works that way in our lives too. And I think that's why the word also stood out to me. Like he gives me everything, and all he asks for is a little bit back. I want one day a week, and I want your tithe. Okay, God, you gave me everything to start with. Of course you can have those things back. So he's kind of doing that with these folks. Um, and in that, we see the character of God. This is the treasure in the backyard. We get to see the heart of the God of the universe when he makes the perfect nation, or at least gives them everything they need to be that. And then we get to see the heart of God and what God wants out of this relationship. The word refuge in the Hebrew is miklot. It means to be taken in or given asylum. Not the loony bin asylum, but asylum like a place where you're safe and you can go. It is a place where people that are protected that are accidentally killing somebody. It's where a manslaughterer can go and be safe. And in that, you get this preordained grace as part of God's perfect nation. This is a big deal. And it's a progressive revelation. We've seen Cities of Refuge before. You can go back to the old podcast and you can listen to Exodus 21. There's only one line that says, I'll have a place for grace. And then when you see it again in Numbers 35, we get a lot more detail. We learn that there's going to be three cities of refuge east of the Jordan, three cities of refuge west of the Jordan. So you get a little more detail in Numbers. And then in Deuteronomy 19, we get a lot more detail and that they're supposed to keep these roads upkeeped they're supposed to keep upkeep on the roads between the cities of refuge so people can get there quickly. So within a day's run of anywhere in Israel, you should be able to get to a city of refuge. You're only a day away from God's grace and God's protection. So in that sense, we've seen progressive revelation. Now in Joshua chapter 20, we're going to get a lot more detail on the names of the cities, where they're located, what they're intended for, and how they work. Uh, so we get a ton more detail. The word there, kills, in, is, uh, is the word um, naka. It is not the word in verse 3, the slayer who kills, naka. It means to strike someone or to accidentally hit them. And in Deuteronomy, we got the thing where if your axe head falls off, we get the first accident. Yes, you remember this? See, people tell the same jokes over and over again. <laughs> Um, but if I accidentally kill someone and it wasn't my intention or my heart to do it, this is a place that I can run to. And the word kills there is not the same word as murder. That's rasa. So it's a very different situation. I didn't intentionally with hate kill someone. So it's an accidental killing. And there's no moral connotation with verse 3. So it's that you killed someone, but it wasn't in anger or it wasn't in judgment or anything like that. It is not to dissemble a human which is rasa or murder. It's, and, and that's against the will of God to, to murder someone. Uh, but in this case, it's not. Ancient law, honor code, we actually still have civilizations today that live by the honor code. You kill my child, I kill you. That's the honor code. It, it makes the world right. 
because justice has been served. So we have nations even around today, this is not just archaic ancient Jewish stuff, this is modern nations today that live by this. That if you do wrong to me, I do wrong, for, wrong to you and that's justice. Um, and here in the Hebrew, the word, the avenger of blood is ga'al or goel, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, it means to redeem or to avenge. It too is value neutral. An avenger of blood is not someone who's doing wrong or they're not doing right. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're avenging the blood that's been spilled and they're making that right with the world. So a good redeemer is someone who captures something that's already been paid for. So if you spill blood of someone in my family, then you owe me a debt and I'm redeeming that debt when I kill you. Does this make sense? I'm just, that's the logic of the honor code system. So God sees this as some sort of balance. And we know that, that murder is evil. Genesis 9, 6, whosoever sheds a man's blood by his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. God made humanity. Anybody who kills a human owes a debt to God himself. The state uses capital punishment to right the wrong of murder. Romans 13, 4, this is New Testament too. If you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, but he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him who does evil. So the idea that when you do evil, there is a debt to pay, that's not an Old Testament only concept. It's old and new. It's assumed that there will be punishment for evil, especially murder, right? So the government that doesn't punish murder is in trouble. And we see that it gets even numbers 35. It even implied that the soil itself is cursed when murder isn't dealt with. So the cities of refuge are not to get rid of dealing with murder. They're to save someone who's not guilty of murder. They are guilty of killing. And God wants to draw a line and a distinction there. The city of refuge is completely new in human history when this gets written. It is absolutely a non-human instinct to let something go in this situation. The human instinct is honor code. Fix it. You killed my daughter, I will kill you. That's the only thing that fixes it. But God intervenes and says there are situations where we need to give some grace. And he draws this very complex legal system around refuge cities that if we understand it, we are digging in our backyard for that treasure and we understand the character of God just a little bit better tonight. And I love that. Um, but also to bring this into modern day, not just New Testament, but also today, when you have murders that go unaccounted for in a country, something's busted in your country. So out of curiosity, I looked up the murder rates in the United States of America, this country that we love and that we feel some obligation towards, right? We like that we live here and that we have Anchor Coffee to go to on a Sunday night. But we have a problem in our country. National Public uh, um, uh, Radio looked at both small and big cities around America and found that there were 7,100 murders in 2020. Murders, people getting killed in America. So 7,100 is a massive number of people getting killed in this country, unaccounted for, unresolved, right? Last year in Chicago alone, and this is parts per 100,000, there were 750 murders in Chicago. And we know Chicago is the city where that happened. 750 people were killed in one city, right? In one year. 322 in LA, 437 in New York City. And you think we get away from it. There's 469 in Philadelphia. Just thought I'd, <laughs> thought I'd go out there. 
in Minneapolis, we had 81 murders unaccounted for. That was a 72% growth in murders in one year from the year before. So this growth rate nationwide, we've seen a growth rate of 36.7% in our murder rate in the last year in America. There's something broken. And it's not God's will that a nation has that kind of thing happening. So God ordains that murderers get executed so that they stop murdering and that other people around them don't think murder is a choice or an option for them. Um, the ga'al is to ensure that balance. The avenger of blood is an extremely affordable way because they don't have to pay for a police system or a detective force. The family assigns someone. And you can bet that every family had that person that if they needed a goel, it's their go-to person. It's their championship athlete. It's their distance runner. It's their finest military top of their class person. That's who you pick to be your goel. So when the average schmo accidentally kills somebody and they make a break for a city of refuge, the person coming after them is in all likelihood better, more capable, more athletic, and more lethal than they are. Because you as a family, and these are big families, you pick your top-notch person to go make that right, and you sick them, you know? And the whole family supports that. So the Avenger of Blood serves a purpose, and that is you take guilty people and you end them. And you do it quick and fast and, and just like. But what happens if it's an accident and there isn't a heart? So God cares about the heart. We've seen that a lot. What if they didn't try to kill the person? The axe head just flew off. It happened to land in their neck. It's a gory scene. Or the tractor breaks. Or you know they get electrocuted when they're setting up the telegraph poles or whatever. And, and somebody it's an accident. If you're around when somebody dies, it's an accident. You don't try to make it right because this honor code is all over the world at this time. You just make a break for it. And you got a head start because the family's got to find their goal. So you get, it's a fair race. Um, and you run for your life to get to a city of refuge. You're literally running for your life because there's an avenger of blood coming after you. And last time we looked at cities of refuge and the avenger of blood, we talked about like the avenger of blood could be a just agent of good making right a guilty murderer. But an avenger of blood can also be an evil source like Satan or the enemy making a, an innocent person die through the avenger system. And that sets up kind of a spiritual understanding of what's going on with good and evil forces. Where good forces, forces are trying to redeem and give mercy and grace, you also have evil spiritual forces that just want blood. And they just want to end people even if they're innocent of it or even if they've been forgiven. They, the accuser is coming and they come as an avenger of blood, a goel. With all that set up, we'll get to verse 4. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Uh, this is one of those instances where I've never heard someone complain that it's only a male. Like, you know, people look at the Bible and they use him in reference to both males and females often. But this is not the verse they pull out when, when they're making that complaint. The entrance of the gate in ancient cities, this is where the market was. This is where usually the ruler of the city would sit at the entrance of the gate. It's kind of like when you go over to somebody's house and they answer the door and they welcome you. If you go into somebody's city in the ancient world, the ruler of that city or an agent of the ruler of the city would be sitting in the gate to welcome you to their city and remind you of the laws. Please put away your sidearms. 
you know, we don't gamble in this city, we don't, so they would remind the law of the city to whoever was visiting and coming and going. So when it says the entrance of the gate, person would run up to the entrance of the gate and state their case. I was doing this, and then the chainsaw broke, and it flew off, and it wasn't my fault, and I didn't try, and they explain everything, probably breathlessly, to this judge. And then you give your case when you come up to the gate. It, and to declare the case is a simple process. It looks exactly like the salvation process. You run to Jesus. You say, here's what happened, Lord. And in my heart, I'm so sorry for all of my sins and the things that I've done wrong, even accidentally. My sins and my trespasses. Sins being intentionally breaking God's law, trespassing meaning unintentionally breaking God's law. Either way, here's what happened. I'm really sorry. Please give me grace. If God says that if you ask, it'll be given to you. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock and it'll be opened to you, the strong implication of that image is that you're at a city gate knocking on the gates, asking to come into the city. So the city of refuge sets up a lot of New Testament imagery around grace and forgiveness. And I think God did that. In, it's not an accident. God did that intentionally so all the Jewish people would understand what grace looks like because they have this beautiful image of it. So it's an amazing promise that we get that if we go up to the gate and ask for forgiveness, God says he'll give it to us. In the Old Testament, slight difference, the judge could decide to not give them grace and not allow them into the city. If the judge determined they were guilty of a murder, then they could leave them outside the city for the avenger of blood. But Christ promises he'll never do that to us. So this is a first in the history of the world, a justice system. Historically, every ancient society had a king that was the law. And when the king wanted to kill somebody, guilty or innocent, the king could kill somebody. This is the first ancient people in the history of the world that has a system where no one person makes that decision. There is a city with, that has elders in it. There's a high priest. But when you come to the gate, your case is told before the congregation. So you get to have your day in court. And that becomes the first time in history that we invent something that in America we take this for granted, that we have a court system. Whether or not it's working or not, that's not the discussion. God's intention is that there is a court system that actually functions and works with justice. So it says that he may dwell amongst them. Once you go to the gate, knock on the door, confess your sins or what happened, and you're given grace, you're actually brought into the city and you start a new life. You throw your old life away because it's gone and it's done. You're not going back to your hometown. That family never has to look at you again because you accidentally killed somebody in their family. So we're going to separate you from that family, and you get grace, and part of that grace is you get to move into the city and you're given a home. And it looks just the same for believers. You run to the kingdom of God, you pray to Jesus, you confess your sins, he forgives you, he brings you into the family of Christ, the church, and you live there for the rest of your life, or until your high priest dies. But our high priest is eternal, our high priest never dies. That's kind of nifty. So verse 5, then if the avenger of blood pursues him, which is likely, that they shall not deliver the slayer into the hand. Notice that it's not a murderer, it's a slayer. Very different concept. Because he struck his neighbor unintentionally and he did not hate him beforehand. God's will is that the heart is what we examine, not necessarily the actions or the outcomes. Wow, praise God for that or I'd be in a lot of trouble. God just looks at the heart and where the heart's at. It's a simple de definition here in verse 5 of the difference between killing and murder. 
With vengeance, there's a limit and there's a boundary. Vengeance doesn't get to just do whatever it wants in God's kingdom. Vengeance has to end at the place that the heart begins. So we get this distinction in verse 5 that in God's kingdom, justice and mercy have a balance. And there is a distinction there. And that pause or that time for the, the elders of the city, the Levites, to hear the case is just a stop before you execute anybody. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. And it's not an emotive decision. So God asks for that thoughtfulness to be put into place. The intent becomes important even in judgment. Um, and we see that. So another image. This shows up, by the way, all over the place in the Psalms. The idea that God is our refuge. Like this is a consistent theme through the rest of the Bible. I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, you're my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry. Like I'm coming to the city gate, Lord. Hear what I'm saying. For I brought, I am brought very low Deliver me from my persecutors, the avengers of blood. For they're stronger than I. Likely, they're picked stronger than you. Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me for you shall deal bountifully with me. Psalm 142 verses 5 through 7. Complete image of a city of refuge. Let me just be with the people of God. And I'll give up my whole old life. I'll find my place here. My heart's just decimated because I didn't mean to do all these things I did. And I, want, and I have a heart that wants to repent. So go to the door, knock, repent of your sins, state your case, live in the shelter of God's presence for the rest of your days. And you got to be willing to do that. So God sets this up in the Jewish law as a city of refuge. Verse 6, And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city which he fled. So this is, verse 6 is the distinction from the New Testament. And where Jesus, our high priest, is resurrected and lives forever, that means we too forever live in the household of God once we go to him for forgiveness. In the Old Testament, when the congregation judges, again, it's multiple people making a jury of their peers, a congregation would be the people that know the slayer. So this is, in America, jury of his peers just means somebody from the same jurisdiction, but I don't necessarily know the people on trial. The intention of this word congregation is that these are people that you congregate with and see at synagogue every week. The intention here is that people who know you judge you. Now, if you got in trouble with the law and eight of us had to gather together and decide if you were guilty or innocent, our hearts would be predisposed to forgiveness because we know you, right? And the heart here is that we err on the side of mercy in this situation. America's justice system has become big, huge court cases that go on for months and even years sometimes. That's not what this looks like. This is an afternoon, you hear both sides, the congregation makes a decision based on people that they know and they've lived with their whole life. Now, if you got a person in your community who's a stinker and they grew up killing animals and all of a sudden they graduated to killing humans, like you know their character over time. You know what kind of person they are. And that affects your judgment towards that person. A lifetime of trajectory adds up to these situations. You also know if somebody's mad at so-and-so because they stole a girlfriend or something like that. Like, you know the backstory, and you can start to put together where the heart is based on those situations. Because these people have been at each other's throats for three years, and all of a sudden one of them dies out in the field as they're working together. 
that's a tough situation for the congregation to make a decision around. So it says, until death. I was stopping and I got to verse 6 and it says, and until death. That's an odd little thing. Why until the priest dies? Why would that even be in there? It's an odd thing. If you think about it, it seems random. There's tons of Jewish scholarship around this until death concept. What does it mean? What does it imply? What does it look like? Um, why is the debt released when the high priest dies? The Verse 6 gives no explanation for this. And we know that in the Bible, we get explanation when God wants us to have it. But there's no explanation gift until, as with other progressive revelations, you get eyes to see it through Jesus Christ. So even with the cities of refuge getting more and more explanation, in verse 6 of Joshua 20, we do not get the full explanation of verse 6. We get that when we get to the New Testament. And this becomes even more revealed when we get to that spot. So it only makes sense in terms of death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven of a Messiah. Then the death of the high priest concept actually makes sense as an image or a preparation or a typology of forgiveness that is eternal. So there's what I would call, this is just one of those Easter eggs. It's one of those things that Jewish people would argue about for 1,500 years, not knowing what it means or why or how, and then Jesus shows up and Paul goes back to his hometown to study the Bible for three years before he starts his ministry. And this is the stuff Paul's finding in the Bible going, the high priest. And then, of course, like the writer of Hebrews, which I think is Paul, could be Peter, I don't know, but read Hebrews. Like they are unpacking this verse 6 with almost, I think it's three, four chapters in Hebrews deals with this concept of the high priest and how Jesus is our high priest. And I'll read some of those verses. So I, I think what a fun Bible study to be in after Jesus ascends to heaven and you're going back through the Old Testament and you come to this stuff and you go, oh my goodness, our high priest never dies. And our, so we're never released. We get to stay with God's people forever. And this is part of God's law that he wrote way back here with Joshua. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, Hebrews 4, verse 14, who's passed through the heavens. So that's relevant, right? Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted like we were and stayed without sin. Jesus actually lived as a human, understands us. When we give our confession to Jesus, he gets us. He gets our heart of repentance because he understands what it's like to be a human and what it's like to be tempted. So he has the ability and the right to do it. They have a forerunner along the roads. Jewish tradition, part of it's keeping the roads clean. Jewish people, this is really cool, they went a step further. They started to, the cities of refuge started posting people on the roads, kind of like a street light. And when they saw somebody running towards the city of refuge and just being exhausted because they're out of shape, they would have a, a forerunner somebody that would say, okay, what's your case? And they would ask them their story on the road to the city. And then that person being an athlete would run to the city and gather the elders and bring them out to the gate to make sure everybody is waiting at the gate. And then the forerunner would give the case to the city of refuge to explain what's coming. And then the person would come up panting and they wouldn't even have to catch their breath. The forerunner would explain the case to the high priest. Isn't that kind of cool? Now listen to this, Hebrews 6, verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
both sure and steadfast. This is something we hold on to, says the writer of Hebrews. And which enters into within, within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our forerunner. We go to Jesus and explain our case. He runs to the Father and gets it all set up and, sp and explains the case for us with a predisposition of mercy. And he becomes the person who stands before the throne of judgment and states our case for us. Kind of amazing stuff rooted in Joshua. So we have this eternal... This week, go do a Bible study on Hebrews. Just read Hebrews after we do the chapter tonight and, and, dig, th and dig through the whole idea of high priest that Hebrews lays out. And you'll still start to realize how important these cities were. The Jewish people were set up to understand Jesus and what he offered. Verse 7. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. These cities should be familiar because we just got done last week with them. And Kirith Arbra, which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, the Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. Golan is where we get the name the Golan Heights up in the northeast corner of Israel. Beautiful territory up there. So they selected these cities, it says in verse 7, they appointed. To appoint something is to carefully select or pick or make a choice. So when they did this, they're giving attention to where they're placed, and they're geographically placing them very intentionally. If some of you still have your maps, they spread them out evenly so that you could get to any one of these at any time. Deuteronomy 19.3, you shall prepare the roads. Divide into three parts the territory of the land in which the Lord is giving you to inherit that any manslayer may flee to these cities. Routinely, they're commanded to keep these roads clean. They get this path that doesn't get cluttered up. They got forerunners to help them get there. Everything's set up for the manslayer, the unintentional killer, the person that's in sin, they have done wrong and they need grace. Everything's set up to protect that person. Everything possible is set up to protect them. If you want grace, you can get it. Here's the other thing. All six of these cities are on elevated hills. They are a city on a hill. And you can see them from a distance, right? The Golden Heights, you'd be able to see that city from almost the whole region around. That's the point, that these are cities of grace where people can run to. You can see them far away. Traditionally speaking, the Jews would light these cities up. So when night would come, they'd pay special attention to light up the walls light up, put like lighthouse towers on the corners of the cities so that the cities would stay lit at night in case somebody had to run at night. Some of, in some periods of Jewish history, they would even light the roads with street lights in order to make this as easy as possible because there needs to be a light in the darkness that guides you to grace, no matter how dark it gets. The imagery here is so thick. Verse 9, these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel, for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. Everybody gets their day in court. So in the New Testament, the guilty can find grace or our sin it created the need for Jesus. In other words, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on a cross if there weren't humans sinning. In that sense, it, as you have sinned and broken God's law, you have, maybe unintentionally, 
killed at least one person in the name of Jesus Christ. He's died on a cross for your sin, even if it's accidental sin. In that sense, you're a manslayer. You have unintentionally killed someone through your actions. And in that sense, the, the New Testament gives us hope first. We get hope. We deserve death in the flesh, but we are easily able to get to the refuge of the very same person, Jesus Christ, because he rose from the dead to become our forerunner. So the person we killed is the same person who's arguing our case before God. Pretty amazing. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. It's easy to get to. More than uh, 15 other times, there's psalms that talk about God as our refuge, using the exact same word that we see in Joshua. Um, if my sin puts Jesus on a cross, that means I'm at least partially responsible for him being there. And the children of Israel and for the stranger, it says in this verse. So this isn't, the refuge is available to anyone, not just Jewish people. And this becomes true, and this is part of what they debate over in the New Testament is, yes, Gentiles can accept Christ too, but the principle for doing that is here in the Old Testament. The refuge, if God's a refuge, is open to everyone according to this verse. Not just the Jew, but the stranger that lives among them too. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. We're brought in and then we're given a home. Everybody who believes in Christ shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. We dwell with our high priest, giving up our old leaf or life, or at least part of it. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, John 8, 31. And then the death of the high priest actually frees us, Hebrews 6, 18, by two mutable things in which it is impossible for us, God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Oh my word. All of the promises of God get set up by chapter 20 of these cities of refuge. So as Joshua carries these out, in the whole picture of the book of Joshua, it's important to know that all of this is setting up a typology for the Jews to understand Jesus when he shows up. And the whole book of Joshua is designed for following Christ, letting God win your battles, figuring out how to deal with sin in the camp, marching forward and taking the territory God's given us as an inheritance, all the gifts that he's prepared for us. And then at the end of the day, there's this grace image of the cities of refuge that gets laid out. It's like Joshua is trying to prep us for the New Testament. Just amazing. First, there's hope. Second, there's cities of refuge that are easy to get to. Third, it's available to everybody. Fourth, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive. Five, we're brought in. We're given a place. Six, we stay with our high priest for the rest of our life. And seven, the death of the high priest is our release from, from, from bondage. And we get all that set up with the city of refuge. Then you get to Joshua 21, and it gives us more detail on where these cities are going to go. And then the heads of the fathers of the house of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, to the heads of the fathers of the house of the tribes of the children of Israel. For verse 1, just notice that the priest is taking prominence. Joshua is demoting himself, and that there are groups of people making these decisions. Verse 2, they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, the Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock, so the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance at the commandments of the Lord these cities and their common lands. So like Simeon, Levi, Levites don't get a territory. 
They're going to get cities to live in. In the land of Canaan is the exact clause linguistically that's used in Numbers 34:29. That's not an accident. It's showing the perfect tie between the book of Numbers and the book of Joshua. It's the same people writing it, and whoever's writing Joshua has numbers in front of them as they write it because they're citing the law and they're citing it perfectly word for word when we see that sentence here. That fulfills exactly what God says to Moses, and then they quote what God says to Moses. They just don't have quotes to put around it. So you could, if you want, and in the land of Canaan, you can put little quotes um, because that's a citation. Levites then get spread throughout the land. Uh, they are going to get their territory after all the tribes get their territory because the tribes have a part in picking the cities that the Levites are going to get. God's already given them authority over their territory. Um, Joshua 13.33 says, But unto the tribe of Levi, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their influence, as he said to them. So we're going back to Joshua 13. We're coming back to it in Joshua 21, kind of like a bookend on either side of this narrative. So they are the servants of the people, and servants go last. The tribes get their stuff, Caleb being the first amongst them, and then Joshua gets an inheritance, and then the cities of refuge are established, and now the Levites are going to get cities where they can go and dwell. When the Levites dwell in a city, that does not expunge the other people that own the city. So the Ephraimites do not leave the city. They just get Levites to live with them. It's like they get a church plant in their city. And the Levites get a spot to set up a synagogue, and they get the honor of having the Levites living among them. So the servants are there to serve the people. They help in a variety of ways. Um, but I think two thoughts as we get into many lists of names of cities. One is that we keep coming back to this idea. God's a God of order. And as we get through these chapters, one nature of God thing we can see is not only his grace from the last chapter, but his sense of order and structure in this thing. God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of fear, and he's not a God of confusion. He's a God of order and right thinking, and he works with and alongside his people to make that happen in an orderly way. So what we're seeing here is a very orderly, methodical process that happens. Second thought, um, this plan has been laid out a long time ago, right? He, God's hand is in this in such a way that even though the people are part of it, they're kind of picking cities that have a lot of a meaning and intent and will become part of the narrative of the Bible as we move forward. So here we go. Verse 4, the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites. So even though the people got the decision to make, they went to do lottery. There's no command that they're supposed to do a lottery here, but that's how they do it because they kind of like how God operates. So they keep working that way. And the children of Aaron, the priest, who were the Levites, had 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Simeon, and from the tribe of Benjamin. So they take the Kohathites, children of Aaron, and they spread them between three different tribes. Um, it's by lot in verse 4 that we see. This is the cool thing. Why would the Kohathites go first? Because they are actually being distinguished. So even though it's by lot, God actually draws out these people first because of their ranking and their order. They are the most honored. Uh, they set up a circle, the cities that they're going to have here, providentially make a perfect circle around another city by the name of Jerusalem. So as we draw these cities, like this, you start to see the hand of God even through the lottery system as to how they're doing this. It's pretty amazing. So 
The other thing with the Kohathites is that it accommodates that later in Israel's history, the northern kingdom's going to fall away and become apostate. Not one of these cities, the Kohathites, are entirely in the southern kingdom. So the people with the Aaron's children that are most prominent amongst the Levites stay with the kingdom of Judah when the nation splits. Uh, the rest of the children of Kohath had ten cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, from the half-tribe of Manasseh. The children of Gershon had 13 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ishakar and the tribe of Asher and the tribe of Naphtali, that's up north, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. The children of Merari, according to their families, had 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, and from the tribe of Zebulon. And the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands by lot to the Levites as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Levites then get scattered amongst all the tribes. Uh, the, their job is to give sacrifices, to teach the word of God, and to organize prayer and feasts according to the book of Leviticus. So they serve the community in those four ways. Prayer, feasting, sacrifices, teaching the scripture or God's word to the people. So when God's word gets read, it's getting read by one of these Levites. Christians there likewise are... <laughs> never commanded to make a Christian country in the New Testament. We're never commanded to do that. We are commanded to scatter and to do it with order and intention, like going to Cambodia. First Peter, Peter 2.5 says, you also as lively stones, you bunch of rocks. I just like that. You also as lively stones are built up into a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You're commanded to be believers and to be out and amongst the world. So we have this guaranteed presence by God for the nation of Israel to have teachers, worshipers, prayers. Remember in Deuteronomy, they do doctoral work, like they do medical services. They also do house inspections. They are judges, so they're the judicial system. God puts these systems, these civic systems in place throughout the nation. This is amazing. So don't forget what Levites do in these cities. God's chosen people are amongst the cities of Israel, and God's chosen faithful are supposed to go out into all corners of the world as Christians. We are to go out into the world and preach the gospel, to be servants, to minister to others. Verse 9, so they gave from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of the children of Judah, and from the tribe of the children of Simeon, three cities which are designated by name, which were for the children of Aaron and one of the families, the Kohathites, and who were of the children of Levi, for the lot, their lot, for the lot was theirs first. And they make that point a second time. They're honored in being first. And he gave them Kirith Arba. Arba was the father of Anak. He's one of the giants which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah in the common land surrounding it. But the fields of the city and the villages he, they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. So the first city that is allocated to the Levites, the children of Aaron, the Kohathites, the prominent Levite family gets Hebron. And that's also the very first city that's allocated civically to Caleb. No accidents. They had to be drawing these lots and picking these just going, my goodness, God is in this because Caleb got the first city assigned to him. Now that's also the first city for the Levites. Those kinds of, you could easily chalk that up to a coincidence. Or if you have eyes to see, you go, no, God's got his hand in everything. 
God's just in control of all of it. So there's absolutely no accident. Easy thing to read over when you're just reading through the Bible, but when you stop for a second, that mention in verse 12 of Caleb, that's a big deal. Um, they are chosen. They're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, 1 Peter 2.9, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So the lot then is given in the exact same place. I just love that. Here's the other thought, another cool image on Caleb. Caleb goes in and says, give me the toughest city to fight for, this city of the, the Arba, this father of Anak. He goes and beats up the giants, claims the first city of Israel. Then he gives up a portion of it to his God and those that serve his God. Think of the character of Caleb. I'll go take the city. He fights for it. He earns it. And then he's like, you want the Levites to be here? I'll give it to him. No problem. There's no hesitation for Caleb. And what we don't see in verses 9 through 12 is any argument from Caleb whatsoever. Perfectly willing to give up parts of his city. And that's good livestock land around the outskirts of the city where the Levites get to keep their livestock too. So he's like, yeah, bring them in. What an honor to have the Levites live in our city. So the other thing with Caleb being the first city here, again, we see another kind of book. We can tell we're getting to the end of Joshua because Caleb being the first story of inheritance, he also becomes the first story of the Levitical or the God's gift to the nation. And we, the people got their land and now God's getting his peace. And the fact that they're tied together with Caleb makes Caleb a really interesting biblical figure because God's using him and all Caleb has to do is be himself. And God keeps using his name and using it in that way. So it's no accident that this city gets drawn first. It's an absolute and total blessing to Caleb and honoring what Caleb did and what his character was and what he was like. So the priests take the houses that they need to live in it. They get some plots, but they don't get territory and they don't get rulership of their city. And I think I might have missed some stuff. Oh, thus the children of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron with the common land, a city of refuge for the slayer. That's our first city of refuge. Libna with its common land, Jatar with its common land, Eshtimoah with the common land, and Holden with the common land, Deborah with its common land. The common land stuff that we're talking about here is that the Levites would get houses to live in, and then they would get some land that they held in common. So no one Levite owned any land. But they could have a place to grow cows, but they would share those cows. Um, it reflects also the holy priesthood that Peter's talking about when they lived in common with each other and they shared their resources with each other. It's what they were trying to do in the New Testament in the book of Acts and when we see those passages is that they were trying to live like the Levites would live in these cities. And the Levites were still living in these cities when the disciples were teaching and preaching and doing their thing. So they had that model to look after. Verse 15, Holon with its common land, Deborah with its common land, Ain with its common land, Judah with its common land, Beth Shemesh with its common land, nine cities from those two tribes and from the tribe of Benjamin. Gibeon with its common land, Geba with its common land, Ananoth with its common land, Almon with its common land, four cities. And all the cities of the children of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities with their common lands. All of these are in southern Israel. All of these cities get weekly Bible studies. If you went to those synagogues, they'd be teaching the Bible every single day. So if you wanted to go to Bible study and you wanted to live close to Bible study, you would go to move towards or live by one of these cities. So it became a place for Bible studies all over the country. Verse 20, all the families of the children of Koath, the Levites, the rest of the children of Koath, even they had the cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim, for they gave them Shechem with its common land in the mountains of Ephraim. Shechem's going to be one of the cities of refuge. 
for the slayer. Gezer with its common land, Kibzaim with its common land, Beth Horon with its common land, four cities from the tribe of Dan, Adelkel with its common land, Gibbethon with its common land, Ajalon with its common land, Gathrimmon with its common land, four cities from the half tribe of Manasseh, Tanak with its common land, Gathrimmon with its common land, two cities, all ten cities with their common lands for the rest of the families of the children of Goath. Koath then has 23 total cities that get given to Levites. Pretty much everybody lives next to a Bible study. And continual prayers going up to God as one of the responsibilities of the Levites. So they're supposed to be teaching these Bible studies. They're supposed to be doing continual prayer down at that synagogue. So if you're nearby one of these cities and you want a prayer, somebody to pray for you, there's 23 cities in these tribal areas you can go to. And you've got somebody that is assigned by God to pray for you. Verse 27. Also to the children of Gershon and the families of the Levites and from the other half-tribe of Manasseh, they gave Golan and Bashan with its common land, that's the city of refuge for the slayer, and B. Eshterah with its common land, two cities, from the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with its common land, Debarath with its common land, Jeremoth with its common land, and Ganem with its common land, four cities, and from the tribe of Asher, Mishal with its common land, Abdon with its common land, Helkath with its common land, Rehob with its common land, four cities, and from the tribe of Naphtali, Kedesh in Galilee with its common land. That's one of our cities of refuge for the slayers. I like how each time it says it, it's a city of refuge for the slayer. Like this is the place where, where people can go to get their grace. I just love that they include that, repetitively adding it in. Hamath Dor with its common land, Carton with its common land, three cities. All the cities of the Gershonites, according to their families, were 13 cities with their common lands. 13 is not the same as 23. God is allocating things differently. A lot of this has to do with the side, size of the allotment that the tribe got. So the allocation of these cities is going to be even spacing. So if I got less, if, if I'm Issachar and I got less land overall, that even spacing just means I get less Levitical cities. But it has nothing to do with God loving those nations or anything like that. Um, but everybody in that tribe would be in close proximity to those things. So you got weekly Bible studies happening in these cities, continual prayers going up to God in these cities, living side by side in fellowship with Israelites, being spiritual shepherds of the people in all of these cities that we're listing off. This is God's intention for his people. It's his will for them. Here, I'm going to give you an entire nation. You don't even have to build the cities. I'm going to give you everything. And my intention for you is then to give you more. And I'm going to bless you with Bible studies, prayer, fellowship with this, these, this holy priesthood, these people who know the word. Verse 34, And to the families of the children of Merari and the rest of the Levites, from the tribe of Zebulon, Jokneam with its common land, Karta with its common land, Dimna with its common land, Nahalel with its common land, four cities, for the tribes of Reuben, Bezer with its common land, Jahaz with its common land, Kedemoth with its common land, Mephoth with its common land, four cities, from the tribe of Gad, Ramoth and Gilead, with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer. Mahanaim with the common land, Heshbon with the common land, Jazer with its common land, four cities in all. So all the cities for the children of Merari, according to their families, and the rest of the families of the Levites, were by their lot, 12 cities. So they're drawing lots, they're picking cities, they're getting allocated. <laughs> all right, one more thing, just to keep interspersing what the Levites did for these people. They had weekly Bible studies. They prayed continuously. They lived in and amongst and with the people in doing this. But here's another one. They coordinated trips to Jerusalem for the feasts. 
So they were vacation planners. <laughs> and so in every one of these cities I'm listing off, you had, a, you had somebody whose job it was amongst the Levites to coordinate and organize for the whole city to go down to Jerusalem for the festivals. And that would have sat right on the Levite's shoulders. You don't even have to plan your own vacations. You just go down to synagogue, ask what's happening, what's going on. And at those annual feasts, they would be doing things in Jerusalem to serve at the temple, but they would also be doing the smaller monthly feasts were happening in these local communities. So they would have virtually a holiday every month, and some of them they went to Jerusalem, the big ones, but the little ones they do in these towns that I'm listing off, and they would organize them, and they would be baking bread for the temple and for the community. So in these towns would be the smell of, of challah bread, and you should eat some more of that because there's a lot left. And at some of these feasts, people would come and bring not just their sin offerings and their burnt offerings, which got burnt up to a crisp, which still smells pretty good. They would also have peace offerings where they wouldn't burn it to a crisp. They'd burn it just right, and then they would give it back to the people and they would eat it. Or a wave offering, right? So in every one of these cities, you had coordinated Bible studies, praying, living in fellowship with one another, and eating at the festivals and having great barbecues together. I would want to be close to one of these cities. And this is God's will for his people. And he's lacing it into the Old Testament as a command for these people to do it this way. Here's the conclusion of chapters 12 through 21 in verse 41. This is the end of the whole narrative of the historical documentation. All the cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their common lands. Every one of these cities had its common land surrounding it. Thus were all these cities. That's the end of the allocation and, and the promises of God then are fulfilled. So the Levites lived there. Notice in verse 41, the cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel. It's very important that they didn't possess the land because that's God, God said that would happen. So they follow God's word precisely and are very careful to make note of that. The Lord gave them the land, gave them refuge, and then God gives them servants pretty nice gift from God. He doesn't just give salvation. He also gives everything you need to get through your life. He gives you more than what you need in the ministry of his saints. So if you hang out with these Levites, you get what you, you get ministered to by them. And he calls us to be like that with the people in our lives. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he, Deuteronomy 32.4. You have a perfect law in Deuteronomy. You have a perfect holy priesthood, Leviticus. You have perfect provision given to them, and God perfectly fulfilling all of his promises, the book of Joshua. Are you starting to see how these books all tie together? God's doing everything, and all they have to do is say thank you and live under God's law. That's, the, that's all he, the, they need to do in response. But they are human and they don't do that. So the promise is fulfilled. Verse 43. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they dwelt in it. Everything that he said to Abraham in Genesis, fulfilled. Isaac, fulfilled. Jacob, fulfilled. Moses, fulfilled. Everything's taken care of. We're getting to the conclusion of a very long narrative. It's taken us about three years to get to this point. God gives the land. 
He gives them the rest. God finishes it. Verse 44, the Lord gave them rest all around. <laughs> I love that. It seems very colloquial to be in a, in a Bible verse. He gave them rest all around. According to all that he had sworn to their fathers and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. In verse 43, he gave them the land. In verse 44, he gives them rest. He doesn't just keep his promises. He does more than what he promised because he didn't promise rest necessarily, but he did promise the land. God consistently does that. He doesn't just answer his promises. He usually delivers more than what he promised. He doesn't just give you salvation. He gives you abundance of the Holy Spirit. Way more than what we bargained for. I love God. I adore this God. So at this point, in Exodus 12, 11, when they, whenever they did Passover, they were supposed to pack up all their stuff like they were running, right? So in Exodus, from all the way back in Exodus 12, 11, they're supposed to not have rest. And Passover was to remind them that if God tells them to move, they might have to leave everything they've got. We as Christians are like that. There's nothing in this life we should cling to. Like we should be able to walk away from all of it for the sake of God and his kingdom, right? Don't hold on to anything in this world. But at this point in verse 44, where the Lord gave them rest, that word has strong ties to Passover. So God becomes their rest. And at this point, the Jewish people stopped packing to travel for Passover. Passover becomes a festival of rest instead of a fest festival of anxiousness and scaring the kids, right? Now, at this point in history, because of that verse in 44, that rest that God gives them, traditionally, the Jews stopped packing for travel on Passover. They just made it into a family holiday where they'd remember what God had done, and they came to a point of rest. So they would gather, they would enjoy things, and God becomes their rest. 2 Samuel 22, 31, as for God, his way is perfect, the word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. He is perfect. So this fulfills the first major promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the form of a homeland. And it's a pivot point in the entire Bible narrative. So from this point forward, now that God's done his job, guess what's going to happen when we look at the human histories? They will fail to do their job consistently. So we get an epic storyline and a major segue pivoting on these verses let's just drive that home with verse 44 not a word failed of any good thing which the lord had spoken to the house of israel all came to pass i want to sit on this sentence a little bit because we are wrapping up the first six books of the bible right here this is a big verse in the hebrew this is a beautiful verse it's one that you memorize or you put on your wall and here's why. In the Hebrew, I'm just going to read the whole thing in the Hebrew. Nepal Debar, Tob Debar, Yehovah Debar, Bayat Israel Bo. Do you hear a pattern there? The word Debar keeps popping up, right? The word Debar means word, something that is spoken or thing. It is a word that takes the form of something. So it is a word that has power. Like when my kids misbehave and I decide what the punishment will be, I have spoken my word, right? And in, in fact, in The Mandalorian, there's the character that says, Grant, I have spoken. It is, a, it is a word that's not just idle chatter. It is the conclusive word of God. So when we see the word debar, that's what that implies. In verse 45, it says, not a word failed. Nepal debar, 
Not a word of what God, in the negative, not one word of God's proved untrue. And then it flips, Tob Debar, of any good thing which the Lord had spoken, right? It says, of any good thing. So not a word failed, any good, for, or, or any good word. So it flips it. It goes from negative to positive. Does this make sense? So Israel can fail on their end, but God doesn't fail on his end. He has spoken, and it has come true. He is perfect. He hasn't messed up. This is the bee that got in my bonnet when I started running into scholars that argued that there were failings in the Bible. That's a horrible thing to say when in this verse it says, not a word failed. Part of the quest we have in America right now is ask yourself, do you believe that? As we've gotten through six books of the Bible, do you believe that you've run into a word that has failed yet? I can barely get through a newspaper article without stuff finding a typo when I write it, right? It is almost impossible for humans to do this. And the point that's being made in verse 45, the claim of the Bible is not a word failed. The Paul Debar. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, Psalm 19.7. The whole point of the Bible is it takes stupid people like me and makes me sound smart. And it does the same for you. You don't have to know everything. All you need to know is that God is perfect. God loves you. God's given you refuge. And you can live in the kingdom of God forever with the certainty and the sureness that not a word of God fails. You can get to your deathbed in the valley of the shadow of death. And what do you fear? Nothing. You fear no evil because you know God's word is perfect. That's the claim of the Bible. It's a big claim. And it's one we ask ourselves as believers, do we believe that or don't we? Is this the inherent word of God or is it not? Because the Bible claims that it is. So then, you know, as a skeptic, let's go find that one imperfect word. And there's people that try to do that. Because if you can find one imperfect word, it makes verse 45 a lie. And if verse 45 is a lie, that opens the whole thing. And God says, bring it. Test my word and see that it is sure. And see that it is a firm foundation and a rock on which you can build your house. What a promise. How amazing. So debar is a word that is spoken, that is completed. It is used three times in this sentence. What does three mean? Complete. It is not a word has failed. <laughs> the word is good, tob debar. The Lord spoke the word. So in three senses, not a word failed. It's a good word. It's Jehovah's debar. It's God's word, right? And again, I think the translation here doesn't do it justice. So if I were to translate this into English, it would be there failed no word, of any good word, Jehovah's word to the family, Israel, all, and then that very last word means settled. It's done. It is finished is literally what it means. Right? Bow. It is finished. They make a point to flip here and to bookend this. They use word th the, word, the word word to bar three times, which means it's complete. This is the finish of God's promises to Israel at this time. He has also laced in a bunch of Easter eggs and promises that are going to be fulfilled later because that's just God. But there are no failed words. They're all good words. God, word for the family, Israel comes to be. Another way to read this 
is that it's a chiasm. The whole thing, in fact, it's structured that way. There are four words before Jehovah, there are four words after Jehovah, with Jehovah standing in the middle like a signal lighthouse, right? To Nepal Debar, Tob Debar, Jehovah, Debar, Debar Bayet, Israel, and you'd think they'd say Debar, but they don't. They say Bo, finished. Word, word, Jehovah, word, finished, right? There's so many ways you can break this sentence down. It's just beautiful. It's built for memory and repetition. Like, we don't even speak Hebrew, but Nepal, that was really lame. Let's try that again. <laughs> Nepal, Tob, Jehovah, Bayat, Israel, Bo. You could see where in the synagogues they would do this. This was something to memorize. It was something to bake into your soul. When you're being challenged by people that don't believe in God Almighty, put this word in your heart. Let it change you. So I love this idea. This has been entered into history. It is a completed entry at this point. God has then a good record. The claim of this sentence is God is like 200 to zero. Like he has an, an absolutely undefeated record. And he never loses. That middle word, Jehovah, I think it goes all the way back to in the beginning, God, Genesis 1.1. And then you get to this verse and it's like God right in the middle of it. It is all come to pass. It is complete and total. I know I'm beating this point over the head, but I think that's what this voice, verse does. It's really driving this point home. Israel then is settled, Bo, in perfection completely settled. God's provision, God's work, and God's love are done. Not one failure. This is important. Verse 45, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel all came to pass. By the way, the spoken to the house is debar bayet. Given the structure of sentence, there's no indication here that your translation should say the house of Israel. They're two different ideas in the Hebrew. So it is his word to the house, but it doesn't say which house. And then it says Israel complete or Israel all. Israel is done. But you can separate that idea of not a word fails. It's a good word, Jehovah, a word to the family. Israel's complete. So those ideas flow in that kind of a sequence. I just find so much assurance in that. And I think what a good God his way is perfect with no mistakes. And his word was for his family. And we're invited into that family of Christ and it's sufficient for us. So I want to tie this back to the New Testament because this is the same God. It's the same God that I think inspired John 1.1. Now I know in the chosen, John's inspired to connect that to Genesis. And I believe that's true. He's using a beginning sentence just like he read in Genesis. But in John 1.1, listen to what he says compared to this sentence, because he could have been inspired by this one too. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. How many times does he use the Word? And in the Greek, he's using it just like here they use it in the Hebrew, debar, debar, debar. And then they use it in the Greek, which I didn't look up. In the beginning... And then in the end, it's complete. And God's word does that. When he had received the drink, Jesus said at the very end, 
It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, John 19.30. So at the beginning of the book of John, reference to this sentence, or could be a reference to this sentence. At the end of the narrative of John, when Jesus says it is finished, he's using the same language that's at the end of this sentence. God's promises are complete. They're done. You know, perfecto. God did it all. It's complete. And that idea of completing implies an entering in of things. And, and, and Jesus is quoting Psalm 22:31. So the concepts throughout the Bible. Peter's prayer is that you as Christians are perfected in Christ in the same word. And this is really cool. He wants you to be settled in just like Israel is in, in the end of, of chapter 21. Listen to what Peter says to you. But may the grace, may the God of all grace who's called into us into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthened, and settle you. May God, who through his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you've suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthen, and settle you. 1 Peter 5.10. He wants you to be settled just like Israel was settled. And he doesn't use that language by accident. He's a Jew. <laughs> this is what he grew up with. The goal of God for the Jews was that you be settled and you find rest. You find peace. You don't struggle. You don't do the I haven't found what I'm looking for and sing the U2 song for the rest of your life. You find what you're looking for, and you're, you can be settled in that. And it's the idea that you're settled in a world that is not settled that makes you utterly compelling to the unbeliever, that you have peace. You've found it, right? That's Paul's prayer for you, and he's praying it through this language we see in Joshua. Paul says the same thing. Listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Great study to go back and look at these. He's, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul's talking about the thorn in his side. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I most gladly, and I will, therefore, most gladly, I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, that I might find rest. And they had rest all around them, despite the thorns in their side. There failed no word of any good words. Jesus, word to the family, you are settled and complete. You just throw Jesus in for Jehovah, right? It's the same wish that the whole Bible has for you. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him, 1 John 2, 5. You and your house and your family can know that God's word is settled in you just like Israel is settled in the land. Oh. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. The goal is, before Genesis even was written down, God wanted you to be made holy and perfect in him. That's his goal for you. That's his goal for Israel. And he's done everything. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You have everything you need to do everything God set out for your life and to experience every blessing God's given you. The only thing standing in your way is you. Just like Israel. They have everything they need to be a shining city on the hill. The only thing standing in their way is their own fear and their own doubt and their own shame. But God's given everything. We need to know God's promises as the people of God because the end of God's promises is sentences like the last two verses of chapter 21. 
it's done perfectly. And God, you can have no doubt at the end of days, the end of our lives, God will have done everything perfectly on his end. And he will give grace because we run to him and he can be our forerunner and go before the Father and say, this, person's, I've, this person actually killed me and I, I want to forgive them because they're, they're repentant of that, their sin, the things they did wrong. All that stuff that the accuser, the Gael, the avenger of blood wants to accuse you of, the victim says, you're not guilty anymore. We're going to just take that punishment that they fully deserve. We're just going to skip that person and pass over them, just like we did with the Israelites. And look at what Israel did. They became this blessing to the world. So one more verse from Romans 8.38. I'm persuaded. This doesn't mean that it's an emotional feeling. Paul was an intellectual. He's persuaded because his, to his mind this makes sense. I'm persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor life, nor angels or principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You all know that verse, right? I want to be so persuaded in God's promises because I know God fulfills his promises and not one word is a mistake or missing or an error. And that becomes so important to the Jewish people. They will go through anything to stay with their God. The punishment the Jewish people have endured over 6,000 years is like nothing that any other people on earth have endured. And they have stuck to it. And they've stuck to it through thick or thin because they know God ultimately wins. And that becomes so baked into their system that we as Christians don't want to take that for granted. That's our spiritual tradition. We want to be like the Jewish people and that once we accept Jesus into our life, neither life nor death can part us from those promises. We are grafted in. We are in the family and the promises are complete forever. What an amazing thing. Even if we have to be apart for a time, we will forever be in the family of Christ. What a beautiful thing. Because Jesus, like God, as God, make that super clear for you, Jesus is perfect. He is the perfect example. The word, the word, the word, Jesus is perfect and complete. Amen. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your holy word and its perfection. We thank you that there is nothing missing. Uh, we thank you we have everything we need. Uh, Lord, we pray with our heart and our soul and our minds that you bless us, that you give us utter conviction that you make us fearless and bold. Because, Lord, what do we have to fear on this earth? Lord, help us to fear you more than anything that we face this week. Help us to put our trust in you more than anything we can earn. Uh, put our faith in you more than anything else we can worship or spend our time on. Lord, be just a blessing. Uh, we just appreciate the gifts you've given, this, the way in which we go home from Bible study just renewed and refreshed. Lord, may that just overflow out of our lives. May I pray that each person in this room, Lord, is not only fed by your word, but knows it and they go do it. And there's nothing that gets in the way of that. Lord, I pray that um, you bless us as we plan, as we dream. Uh, may your Holy Spirit be in that. Um, may you be in each thing that we do, Lord, because we know you've prepared the way and you've done it for us. May you make us fearless and bold and proclaim the glory and the goodness of God without error and without fail. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, I forgot. Of the 48 Levitical cities, that's one city short of 49, which is seven <laughs> times seven, which is perfection, perfection. And the one city that they're missing is Jerusalem. Had to add that on the end of this teaching. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.